You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, the podcast where we talk about all aspects of therapists' lives and therapy concepts in general. We appreciate you listening to us, and if you do us a favor, wherever you listen, if you wouldn't mind going there, leaving us a rating and a review, it definitely helps us out. And today, I am going to argue with Katie, and (laughs) this is stuff that she was recently at a conference and kind of came back all all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with new knowledge and she was telling me about one of the workshops that she was at. And I said, you know, I can make a pretty strong case not having heard the entirety of this presentation against what you're talking about. So what, <laughs> what is, is basically at the crux of this is kind of presenting two separate ideas. I think Katie and I ultimately fall somewhere in the middle, but for your listening pleasure, we're going to do kind of an argument of the, the battles of, of both extreme sides of this. And I think the crux of this is, is mental health access a, a universal right? Yes, that is the crux of it. And just to, to cite where I got the, the wild hair or the bright-eyed, bushy-tail kind of scenario is I was in Chicago with Maureen uh, Warbach and Michael Bloomberg's uh, Group Practice Owners Summit. It was awesome, and they're putting it on again next year. But... They and actually, Maureen is a, a friend of the show. She's been one of our podcast guests in the past. So this is something where we, we are very happy to support her and her ventures in, yeah. in discussing this. Yes, there were a lot of a hashtag modern therapists there. Uh, we had some, put some pictures up on social media. It was, it was like being in a Facebook group, but in person, kind of like our conference. So anyway, the Group Practice Owners Summit was as it's described, a whole bunch of group practice owners who were talking about how to improve, how to make their practice work. And there was a lot of business concepts, all those kinds of things. So the talk that I'm specifically referencing is one where Maureen and Michael talked about mental health access as a human right. And it really kind of resonated for me because I initially had become a therapist because of working, you know, like because of my experiences in public mental health and because of my experiences in providing therapy to people on Medicaid called Medi-Cal in California and being able to go into places that have really high needs and provide those services. And now I am a private practitioner who is in the process of getting off all insurance panels from, or at least most of them and raising my fees and kind of having this internal kind of moral, you know, kind of discomfort, I guess, about recognizing that I am moving into a place where I will be providing therapy only to people who can afford it. And oftentimes those are the most privileged people, not always, but it's it's something where it has shifted with the type of work I'm doing, but it also has kind of gone against this idea that mental health should be accessible to all. Now, I know that there are awesome, wonderful agencies in my area that provide free therapy services. And I know that there are also 
organizations that provide low-cost services, although sometimes that's on the backs of pre-licensed folks who are working for free. But I think to me, like I, I can I can backstop it a little bit and say, oh, it's not that bad because there are other services available. But personally, I've I've had that disquiet, I think, about not being a part of mental health access. And so, you know, of course, because I am one of those shiny object entrepreneurs, I started thinking about creating a training center. I started thinking about all the different ways that I could expand access myself in my community for the people that are kind of in that gap between Medicaid and being able to afford it or have insurance that people actually take. But I think it's something where for me, it really highlighted a difficulty that I have with our profession, because sometimes we get so focused on either the extreme of martyrdom or the other extreme of entrepreneurship, like charge as much as you can, value your worth, you know, don't don't charge too little because then it'll lower everybody else's rates. Like I think that there's this tension that I'm experiencing around this. And so I figured, hey, let's talk to Kurt. He's a he's a capitalist. Very much taking kind of this from from a couple of, of of different pieces that I'll that I'll put together here, but you know, as a, as a society, yes, this is a, a need that that betters us all to address it. Now, where it ranks in that priority, I think, is really where I initially kind of bristled at Katie's idea because when I think of things of, of universal human rights, mm-hmm. I, I, I go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of first. And yes. looking at, you know, the, the absolute bottom structure of it is things like shelter and, and food and water and these kinds of things. Definitely human rights there. Yes. You know, I've seen memes in the 21st century that also puts Wi-Fi on, on that <laughs> level. But, but when I look at Maslow's hierarchy and looking at kind of where psychotherapy or, or mental health really fits in, it maybe comes in at love and belonging needs or even higher at esteem needs, which is really high up in, in the hierarchy of needs. I see what you're saying. I think that there are folks where therapy addresses a survival need because people are extremely suicidal or homicidal or or in such a, a difficult place in their life. And I think sometimes these are the folks where access is through Medicaid, you know, for, for people in the United States and, and for folks in other places, I guess there's, there's, you know, kind of the universal health care and, and hopefully mental health is included. But I think for me, there is this piece that we are saving lives and that to me, kind of being able to live is important. But I think that, you know, and again, systemically, I'm in support of this. But I think yeah. that it's being able to place it in in the right context because uh, something local here in the Los Angeles area, but definitely affecting a lot of other parts of the country too, is is the homeless crisis. And there's all sorts of money being given to direct services to go and serve mental health needs in these areas of being able to address mental health and addiction first. But when I look at this as you know, being placed on, on Maslow's hierarchy is that they need shelter first. This is where, you know, to go and have somebody who's working in, you know, out on the streets, working with homeless people who do have mental health needs, 
we we've known since the 1940s when Maslow came out with this that in order to provide structure first, this is the the better setup for this is giving homes first. And I could probably go into a whole episode just on my thoughts on dealing <laughs> with homeless crisis. But as long as some of these needs are being met, they need to be geared towards the right area. And you know, this is where Medi-Cal does come in. But when it comes to potentially this move even to you know a, a universal healthcare system, is that as long as there's still the option for me as the individual therapist, my needs as the individual therapist are potentially very capitalistic, much greater than my needs to contribute to solving this societal problem. That while many of us enter into this field because of our desire to give back, it's also something where many of us entered into this field because theoretically, it's a pretty safe monetary profession to be in as well. And this is where our needs is being able to earn that individual money helps us to be able to do that job. You said a lot. <laughs> so I have to kind of go piece by piece. So I think the first the first thing that you're talking about, the kind of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs for clients. I think that there is an argument and there's developments that that aren't exactly what you've said. I think people who are encountering homelessness, people who are struggling with addiction or people who have mental health needs that uh, need to be addressed. I think that the programs are so diverse. And I think that there are many programs that provide housing while they're getting treatment. And I think that most of the programs that I've worked with and the ones that I've, that I've seen, a lot of the individuals who are participants in these programs do have some sort of connection to that. And I think this is more the holistic view. And I think that this is where public mental health, I think, is actually getting it right, is that they're not separating mental health from, you know, physical structures, like, you know, with wraparound or with, you know, like homelessness and, the, and that those programs, I think a lot of those do have funding to provide basic needs so that you can get to the therapy and that kind of stuff. Obviously, there are some folks who would rather do mental health work without getting a home because that is threatening to them. And there's all kinds of different, you know, kind of diagnoses in the different structures that, that don't exactly line up with the traditional Maslow hierarchy of needs. But I think to me, systems are probably better able to handle things at that level. And that's why I think having a robust social services system, I think is very helpful. So this is, I guess, where our, our leanings are probably showing up as far as political leanings on, on what we should be providing to the people who are most in need. When you start talking about kind of your own needs, I agree that there, and this is where the tension comes in, right? That I agree that I need to have the ability to earn a living that creates a life that I want. I think for me, it's where the meaning comes in. I, I feel very, I feel the, the work that I do is very meaningful with the folks who can afford my services and the folks who cannot and are, you know, actually seeing me through Medi-Cal. Those services are and oftentimes equally meaningful. So I don't want to, to say that it's not. I think for me, as an individual, as a hashtag modern therapist, whatever, I see a responsibility to society as a whole as part of my makeup. And so saying, hey, I'm serving this person individually, 
and that person is either able to to pay me or not or you know making that decision there's practicalities and a spreadsheet and how many lower fee clients can i take and all of that that i've i've put together so that i can create a sustainable income i think for me it's about the larger mission and not necessarily having some of these things line up exactly. I think people who can afford it should also have access. So like, I don't want to be like, no, I'm only going to work for free and find somebody to fund my lifestyle. (laughs) Like, I don't believe that that's the case. I think it's, to me, it's about, I can't separate out and and maybe this is how I've always entered the field. I can't separate out my work from my responsibility to the community or the world at large. Like for me, and maybe that's why I sometimes get a little antsy when I just have, you know, just individual therapy clients. And this is why I do this podcast. This is why I do the conference. Like I think it's, it's, I do these larger things because I want to have a bigger impact. But when I try to pull this larger impact down into my practice, sometimes I have to do kind of mental gymnastics to get it to line up with the mission that I initially started into the profession for. And I think that this is something where it's not necessarily that we have different goals. I think it's just where we prioritize them is that oftentimes the work that we do with clients is to take care of yourself first before you worry about everybody else. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's something that we espouse here is being able to take care of you first. It's not putting all of your clients first. It's not putting society first. It's being able to take care of your own needs as the therapist first. And especially if you're in this entrepreneurial space that you are able to take care of your own needs on Maslow's hierarchy through the work that you do. And if you can find meaning through that work as well, then that sounds like an awesome crossroads of what, you know, is both your dream job and, you know, being able to help society and be able to make money while you do it. I think the thing that I agree. And I I think that we need to take care of our own needs and the people who are not meeting their own basic needs because of low fees, working for free, those kinds of things. I think that is painful. Some of it is, I hate to say it, self-inflicted. Some of it is system-inflicted. But I think that there is an uncertainty where that line is. At what point have I taken care of my needs and now I get to focus on having meaningful work and being able to, you know, like, and and not that it's, you know, sequential. Obviously you want to create something that's meaningful, but, but at some point when you're starting to reevaluate your niche so that they can pay more money (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you, and you're looking at these things and you're, and you're, you know, expanding your lifestyle to fit your income, which I think is all wonderful. And we are entitled to it as individuals in this society. Like, I think that we, we should have great lives and, and be able to travel and be able to have nice homes and to be able to do all those things. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things, but I think it's that the kind of the gut feeling around at what point have I sufficiently taken care of myself? So now I've, I'm not out of the ethical, I'm not taking care of my own basic needs and into, at this point, I'm just trying to get more money because I want more money. Well, and I think that, you know, as you bring up the systemic portions of this, this is something where if we were paid a living wage across our profession and I, I choose those words very specifically yeah. out of a, uh, 2005 article out of what's called the Annapolis Coalition, and we can include a link in the show notes for that. But this question 
gets answered when we're all able to take care of our own needs. And that's getting a living wage out of it. And as long as our system doesn't value the workers in it, as long as we don't apply kind of this universal care to both the providers and the consumers of mental health access, then I think that what we're left with is a situation where it actually encourages people to take that entrepreneurial spin in order to take care of themselves. Because if the system is only focused on taking care of the consumers and not on the providers in there, then it's up to the providers to take care of themselves. That makes sense. I think the the thing that I I I come back to is is there's this idea that if we were to have universal health care, it would make mental health stronger. And I know you and I have, I have had other uh, conversations about that. And in truth, I think it hits up against this entrepreneurial thing where if if everyone had the same access to mental health treatment, exact same access to mental health treatment. It was part of their healthcare plan and they had either all the same copay or zero copay and it was completely ac- accessible. It would it would fundamentally change the job for folks who decided to be involved in the healthcare system. Most likely it would be whether it's a 60 or $80 an hour for every session, theoretically, there's no marketing, but there's still, if you've got a lot of people all on insurance in the same area, you would still want to market to have, you know, and have a brand so people could find you. And so, so if we were to actually go to a hundred percent access place where everyone could access mental health at the same rate with, you know, and, and made it very affordable, being a therapist in a private practice turns into a job, right? It's, it's not an entrepreneurship very much at all because, somebody calls, you take their insurance, they sign up and you only get a certain amount. And, you know, there's, so I think to me, I, I balk against that as well because I want to have the ability to make more than that. So, so this is where my dilemma comes in because I am definitely an entrepreneur and I want to make a really good income, but I also, but I also have this other side that says, I want everyone to be able to access mental health care and not doing it myself feels feels wrong. There's two points that I want to bring up in response to this. One is kind of at that systemic level again, and one at the personal level, is that at the systemic level, I'm worried that if we stagnate wages, if we put everybody in kind of this universal, here's $70 for every client that you see, is that, like you said, it takes what we do with passion and it turns it into a job. Yep. I also think that that potentially limits the innovation that our workforce really can come up with in order to try and succeed in coming up with new and better ways of of making therapy work. Mm -hmm. If we just go and do our job and see clients and follow these evidence-based practices that have a 70, 75, 80% success rate, then there's no motivation to really go and succeed into finding something that might have a 90, 95, 98% success rate. So I'm, I'm concerned that it stifles innovation. But again, coming back to that individual level is that it takes that drive, that care that we want to put into this work and makes it more of a task to do. And that's really what goes against 
what we know makes therapy work, which is our relationships and the way that we as individuals interact. And if what we are ultimately trying to sell is what's more effective, if we're reimbursing everybody at the same rate, it flies in the face of the evidence that, as our friend Ben Caldwell points out, <laughs> some of us get better results than others. And this is where it not only stagnates innovation, but it stagnates us to actually trying to get better, which would get better results. I think I think it has the potential to stagnate because I think that there are folks who work in public mental health with these evidence-based practices with the salaries being the same, you know, it's on a scale, it's not based on necessarily on on skill level but on potentially time in the trenches. I think there are folks who are doing very high quality, very creative work in those spaces. So I don't want to speak against having therapy as a job versus therapy as a business. Because I do think that there are, are folks who are in all of these systems that are doing really great innovative work and are using that foundation of, of not having to worry about money and not have, you know, or getting clients and, and, and using that in a, in a very positive way. So I, I, I want to speak up against that just very briefly. I think for me, I think that the hope that comes from this, from what you're describing, is that potentially there's innovation that helps us to increase access even in this entrepreneurial system. Mm-hmm. Because I think to me, and these were some of the things that you know Maureen talked Maureen and, and Michael talked about in their their talk, but it, but finding creative ways where you're still able to cover costs, make the the revenue and profit that you want to make while still making therapy more accessible, I think are great. You know, whether it's creating an online course or or doing group therapy, we'll we'll probably have Katie Keats May coming on soon to talk about that. You know, there's there's a lot of different pieces where we can actually expand out what we do and become very creative with what we do that does make it more accessible. Uh, so I, I think that there are ways to do it. I think for me, the dilemma becomes how much time do I spend on that and how much do, time do I spend on building my my income. How much time do I I spend on innovation and how much time do I spend on checking the box, right? Like I think it's it's hard because like I still take insurance, not a ton of spots, but I still take insurance and that gives me more access within my practice, but I'm feeling more and more with the things that I'm putting in that it's not really that sustainable for me. Like it, it's becoming harder and harder to sustain even a few spots with that because of the things that I'm doing to create access and to have an impact elsewhere. So, so I think for me, it's, it's really just about the, the thing I wanted to really dig into was kind of this finding your own personal space on how you make that decision. Cause systemically, I think we're all working on that in sure. some way or shape or form, but it's like, where do you find that personal space and, and become comfortable with it? Because I think there is this, you know, kind of martyrdom that's appreciated by a lot of folks in <laughs> our field. And there's also the entrepreneurial thing that's more and more appreciated as we go along. So how do you get to your space on that? Because I'm still grappling with it. My my intention is that this is the last time that I'm going to bring up Maslow's hierarchy. But <laughs> that's what, your intention? <laughs> yeah, I'm not making any promises here, but... I hear you struggling with the self-actualization aspect of, of Maslow's hierarchy. 
you know, yes. you're, you're describing a hashtag top of the pyramid problem. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just create a new hashtag? Yes. Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but in in getting comfortable with this and and maybe this is so much of the looking at our profession and looking at careers and looking at the systems that go into delivering psychotherapy that I've maybe got a little bit too much bitterness about the stagnation overall of where our field has hit over the last several decades is that if we are to succeed as individuals working within this system that we really do have to look out for ourselves first. And a lot of us put in our dues in community mental health agencies in working with the highest need clients, which we've all agreed has become a, you know, a a system where the clients with the highest needs are often seen by the therapists with the least amount of experience or the least amount of training. And this is part of where I advocate so much for getting that living wage, because if the system isn't taking care of us from the beginning of our field, what we're left with is people who can exist and survive through this field and and to be able to do that monetarily. And if that's kind of the capitalism that's required to succeed in just getting to licensure, then we need to we're almost forced to stay on that trajectory of maintaining kind of that capitalistic ideal in order to continue to stay in this field and continue to want to provide things and be able to develop your passive income or or services and whatever else. But what it also does is it creates kind of this drawbridge effect where we're reluctant to treat the people who are in their earlier stages of the career with the way that we wanted them, we wanted to be treated when we were there. And so it's just kind of this, you know, self, you know, what's the snake that eats its own tail sort of problem of just, you know, continuing on this cycle that unless the system takes care of itself and takes care of its providers first, I almost see this as it's forcing us into doing this. And I've, I've come to an acceptance that there are people who need a lot of services. I can provide services to some of them and that's what I can sustain. And that's what I've come to being comfortable with. So the system made me do it and this is what I can do. So I will do it. Yes. That's an interesting perspective. Cause I think the system itself in wildly varying degrees are trying to address the problem. I think that therapists are finding their income in some areas are still basement, low, horrible, and other places are rising really quickly because if you don't have therapists, you don't get billing. But, and, and also some of the other pieces, you know, trauma-informed workplaces, the things that we've talked about in like the burnout machine and, you know, different ones where we've talked about this, the system issues I guess for me, I, I really balk at kind of this external locus of control. The system made me do it. Like that part is where I think that's where I really have the issue with it. Like I think we need to respond to the environment that we're in. We need to make choices based on facts and reality. And and the facts and the reality are a lot of these public mental health organizations are are not taking care of the clinicians and not 
you know, whether it's monetarily or even just as professionals, you know, they're treating them, they're dehumanizing them. And to lesser extents, I'll, I'll put group practices in there as well. Not that I think that there's the same kinds of, of structural abuses or structural taking advantage of, but in looking at having employees that you're not taking care of them to meet their needs as well mm-hmm. really contributes to the problem too. It might be to a much lesser degree as far as, you know, it's not, it's not a straight apples to apples comparison, but I'll, I'll put them in the conversation. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that there's, you know, like, I think we can look from the perspective of I need a higher wage and I also need to be supervised and I need to have this training and I need to have this place to work. And there's a lot of things I cannot create. I'm not an entrepreneur in this space yet. And, and whether it's an agency that has a lot of infrastructure and and oftentimes can pay much more or a group practice and some group practices have done a really good job and are, are paying pre-licensed or provisionally licensed folks very well, but, but there are, there's so much overhead and there's, there's so many pieces to that for group practice owners that oftentimes they aren't paying very well, you know, that there's, there are, there are the, the systemic issues go beyond what people want to do, you know, like let's not dehumanize the group practice owners or, or the agencies either. There are real people trying to make real differences and provide this access to people in their communities. I think that the realities, I mean, maybe we, we take it to a larger systemic issue of there is mental health stigma. There are people who are not willing to pay for mental health services and they're not willing to pay for the mental health services of the people in their communities. So there is, there is a, a lack of, for, lack of a better word, revenue. There's a lack of revenue flowing into the mental health system wherever it lies. And so people that are on the front lines actually doing the work, oftentimes, are, you know, the, the little bit of revenue is picked away into the infrastructure and the, the margins go down and it gets very stressful. And so, yes, that's, you know, I think we've talked about this in a couple of different episodes, whether it's the burnout machine or the different types of burnout or whatever. But I think being able to to actually get into this space where we look at i am going to choose in the best way i can to to pursue the mission that i have i think i think maybe that's how i get my head around it because i think and that's the second part of what you said is that the system made me do it but i'm going to do what i can so i'm going to do that and i think for me i need to be able to make the the income or those of us who are you know, in this same struggle of, of whether it's a hybrid practice or raising your fees or, or getting off insurance pencil, whatever, I need to make sure that I can sustain this career so that I can keep addressing these systemic, systemic issues in other ways. Or I can come up and be very entrepreneurial and creative and create different types of programming within my own practice or create a group practice that provides services in a way that is respectful of the clinicians as well as the clients and and provides access. Like I can do those things only if I have taken care of uh, my hashtag bottom of the pyramid needs. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's, it's that it's, it's getting my head around that, but I think it's, it's, it felt so visceral for me in that conversation that the reason I keep struggling to, to shift things on some of these clients that I've had for a long time, partly as I enjoy working with them, but some part of it is this huge value around mental health access for people at all income levels. 
this is probably something that I need to speak more directly with Maureen about, but I know Maureen's a big champion of profit first. And to me, and what I would need to understand from her is how you can both have profit first and meet the needs of people who don't provide revenue. And I think that this is something where I see it as, you know, being on the mission of taking care of, you know, being able to have a life and deriving meaning out of the work that we do is something where, you know, we, we see this with, you know, especially a lot with millennials, but in, it's not necessarily at, you know, this corporate sort of, you know, shareholder thing where it has to be all profits all the time, that there can be a kind of in between of both having a taking care of yourself and having profits too. And I would direct you to Daniel Pink's book, Drive, to hear more about this. And uh, he references that there's even kind of a newer business structure that's allowing nonprofits to kind of have a limited profit sort of idea. So that way their mission does come more first. But at the base of all of this is the argument that we still need to have a wage that allows for us to still be comfortable enough that we're able to get the meaning out of the work that we do. If I'm only making $25,000 a year, my problems are not going to be focused on changing society as a whole. I'm still going to be worried about how am I going to pay rent and how am I going to put food on the table or if I have childcare needs that need to be done that allow me to go and work, then I've got other issues that fall somewhere in the hashtag middle of the pyramid. But, <laughs> you know, and we'll, I don't have something readily at hand, but we'll put something in the show notes. But I remember a couple of years ago, the, there was a research study that said that the optimal kind of happiness level of income is about $75,000 a year. And that beyond that is kind of this diminishing level of satisfaction with the work that we do. And, you know, some people are you know, going to be very happy making millions and millions of dollars. But for those of us working in this profession, $75,000 is pretty good. Yeah. And, that's where we're still going to find the most meaning out of our work. But in order to get to that level of an individual income, whether it's on the entrepreneurial end of private practice, whether it's working in one of these agencies, that you've still got to balance out that fulfillment need of self-actualization of giving back and changing society and helping other people with taking care of your own needs. And you can't prioritize society over yourself if you're not able to take care of yourself there first. Yes. <laughs> I don't have much of a response because I agree. I think that there are opportunities for folks to to be able to give back. But I think in truth, and, and I don't know that this lines up. I, I'm sure that there's studies and I don't think I'll find one for the show notes. Sorry, guys. But I think there's studies that people who make less oftentimes are more likely to give back higher percentage wise. <laughs> but I just, I think it's, it's something where I just wanted to honor that, that this is a struggle. It, it really is. And I pointed out at the beginning of the episode that we're, we're taking kind of the, the two polar ends of this just for good discussion. Yes. Yeah. People need to be seen that I don't know that it's something where systemically it's the necessarily first investment that needs to be made. But there definitely is the need there and being able to 
have an overall system that does address it shouldn't be exclusionary of the people who do create practices that serve higher fee clients. There's like a whole other conversation about where we address this systemically. <laughs> I think access is going to be the way that we get higher wages. So <laughs> I think it will be what has to be addressed first, because if people are just saying, let's pay therapists more, it's kind of like saying, let's just pay teachers more. <laughs> I, I think people, I think there's a whole, a whole conversation that we don't have time for about how, you know, our profession is is seen and and what the actual steps could be. So I'll just leave. I'll just I'll just plant that seed for another conversation. <laughs> oh, and if you the listeners have answers to all of these systemic problems, we'd love to hear your ideas. You can join us in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. You can hit us up on our social media and leave us a comment or suggestions on things that we're either hitting on or that you think that we need to add to the conversation. And you can find our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. While you're there, check out the Therapy Reimagined Conference. Uh, it's October 18th and 19th in the Universal City neighborhood of Los Angeles. It's going to be two days, two, two plus days of a lot of fun, depending on when you want to join us. And you can get all of that information on our website as well. We're super happy that we're partnered up with Simple Practice. They're taking care of all of the CEs for that. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whittell with Katie Renoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.